Hey, we're still here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Phil Ward. He's a professor at the Department of Human Sciences at the Ohio State University. And I've learned to say the Ohio State University <laughs> there, Phil. Uh, today we are discussing the article, uh, which is chapter three, PK to 12 school physical education, conditions, less, conditions lessons learned, and future directions. Uh, this was in JTPE in a very recent special issue. We've had uh, two other ones. Uh, with um, Murray Mitchell and Hans von der Mars did two other chapters. So um, I'll link to this in the um, article notes as well. Um, so Phil, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. So I guess in in to start, can you explain the three perspectives you try to work with here to explore the issues, challenges, opportunities, and alternatives to PK-12 school physical education in the U.S.? Yeah, um, just by way of introduction to how we got here, uh, Hans Vandermars and Murray Mitchell and Hal Lawson and myself um, represent um, a decidedly male and older generation of uh, Pete scholars, but we, we communicate fairly regularly and, and like multiple times a week over the last couple of years and uh, sometimes more than that. And we got to talking about um, why things are the way they are and what we might, how we might look at it. And you've got um, uh, Hal Lawson, who is a, a, a critical and uh, theorist, but also more um, uh a systems kind of guy right now who's looking at sort of evolutionary uh, rather i would say probably more revolutionary change um mm -hmm. uh murray who's a sociologist he was formerly um hell hell lawson student but uh has done a, a work as a teacher educator uh, at the university of south carolina hans vandermars and i hail from ohio state and so we have that history and tradition as and our work um, post-graduation over the years is pretty much um, focused on um, teaching effectiveness and uh, in and a little bit in curriculum uh, for me and a lot in curriculum for Hans. And so we came together with very different perspectives and those perspectives drove pretty much how we looked at this. And so if you had any of us talking in this uh, podcast, I'm pretty sure you would get a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, and we welcomed that difference of opinion because we thought if we four could come together, then just about anybody could come together. Um, uh, so we, we, we began with what we call the descriptive analytic framework, which was simply looking at what is the reality? What do we know about where we are and what are some indicators about where we might be? Um, we also looked at it from a critical perspective. Uh, our perspective was pretty much grounded in the notion that we shouldn't just accept what is. We should look at, you know, the selectivity issues that we've made and um, so, and the things we might select in the future and what, you know, the hidden curriculum and consequences of those things might be. Uh, and the null curriculum, I should say. Um, we look for gaps in what we have uh, in terms of the outcomes we, we're producing right now. Uh, we looked at needs. What what do people need? And um, we looked at opportunities that exist right now. Uh, an example of an opportunity is the um, whole school, whole community, whole child uh, movement right now, which I wish we would move more towards, but it is an incredible opportunity um, because it's the first time that education and health 
physical education have actually been combined to focus on the whole child. And I think it is a very good way forward. I'm, I'm not sure how far we'll get with it, yeah. but, but I think it's a very good way forward. Yeah, and I, and I love the special issue because there's there is so much thought put into this and every paper is a little bit different and you can clearly see the different points of view that you kind of have a conversation within this special issue about. And part of what you shape this special issue on, what you called in the paper an inescapable priority, that the field of PE lacks direction and purpose relative to what is in the best interest of the whole child. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, again, um, you know, depending who you've got on the podcast, and I don't just mean my co-authors, but whoever, they're going to talk about what the priority of physical education is. Um, I like to think of what physical education does, not from um, its contribution to what might be academic learning, not from its contribution to health outcomes such as the the um, the reduction of hypokinetic diseases as a result of sedentary lifestyle. Um, I like. I also don't think of it just in terms of teaching motor skills that folks can use throughout their lifetime. Uh, I like to think of it as the opposite of work. Um, we teach what to do in your leisure and recreation, not all encompassing in those areas. And the number one outcome for me is joy. If we can't create positive and caring experiences where children, youth can experience joy, um, we, we, we have a bit of a problem because mm -hmm. I can't see from any of the literature that we've stumbled across the, the key motivational variables that promote lifetime physical activity. And in fact, if I sit down and talk to my entry-level class in anthropology at my university, most of those students do not report that they had positive experiences in physical education. Most of them, if we track them when they leave school, are not going to engage in regular physical activity. And, and by regular, I mean daily or every other day. And there's a problem for that. Uh, and there are problems with that, as we know. But one of the things that is common when you talk to them is they don't like physical activity. They view it as work. And we've got to turn that around so that we've got an outcome that is not quite the same as a group of elementary schools being let out in the play on a grassy playground running through the daffodils. I know that's metaphorically kind of um, out there, but but if we don't produce that sort of outcome in our teaching, and, and to do that in any sustained way, you've got to produce movement competence and, and have knowledge that goes along with it. Um, if you don't do those things, I don't know um, if if at the end of the day, we are going to be that successful. We might go the path of the way trigonometry is used in schools. They have to do it, but it's not used much for most people once they graduate, unless you're an engineer. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's a good outcome for us. No. Uh, but all of those other outcomes, um, hyperkinetic disease, physical activity, et cetera, all of that can be pulled along um, as, as outcomes if we can have uh, folks willingly engaging in physical physical activity because they enjoy it not because they want to avoid getting a heart attack or it'll make them better academically all of which is true um but uh, i think the bigger goal is the old dichotomous um position of it's the opposite of what we do when we don't work yeah 
and and I like that you you brought it back to joy. I think that that's that's part of what we as teacher educators are trying to instill, and you know, the 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 hope is that that's what we're doing. But in your paper, you talk about some of the conditions that PE teachers face in the U.S. schools, and and I think when when I'm reading through this, I'm like kind of nodding my head, and I think a lot of U.S. based educators will will nod their heads and you accurately describe some of, you know, people's situations, but maybe because we have a lot of international listeners, maybe they, uh, you can talk to what the U.S. school system is like for PE teachers so they can kind of see some of the challenges um, in teaching and, and being able to get to that end part, which is joy and this, you know, lifetime motivation to be physically active. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, teachers in America, America are confronted with uh, a variety of challenges, some of which occur overseas as well, some of which don't. Um, and contextually, they, they vary greatly across the United States, even within states. Um, so from a lesson perspective, um, our, our, our classes are made up of folks who really vary from the sort of family structure they came to that uh, they come from the SES, their race and ethnicity, their cultural experiences, their general movement experiences. And teachers are increasingly looking at a really diverse range of um, students who, who in addition to being diverse, many of those experiences are positive and negative, And so they bring those things with them to school. Um, I think at the end of the day, what that means is you've got to meet the student where they are. Uh, that means the teacher has got to adapt, be adaptable. Um, I think the, the content has to be meaningful, but at the end of the day, the content has got to be things that students learn. And in physical education, I'm, I'm com completely convinced from my time in, as a teacher and, and in higher ed that, that students expect to learn. And if they don't learn, they, they turn off. And and if you can get them learning, they might come in not expecting to learn, but if you can get them learning over time, that's a very good outcome. And it the question our field has to ask is, you know, what do we mean by learning? And in 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 my my sense, the best way we can advocate for the field is for teachers to say, this is what I taught the students, whatever it might be, a motoric, a, a cognitive, an affective outcome, and here's what they can do now that they couldn't do before. I don't think we need, you know, studies to prove that. I think teachers just simply show that that so-and-so could not throw well, could not move to get open, and now they can do these things in physical education because ultimately that's what we're about. The problem surrounding that is that there is virtually no accountability on teachers and so if we were if we were talking to reading teachers they would be saying uh, in elementary school just how much accountability is on them particularly at, at particular grade levels like third grade where many states have um, uh, make or break uh, uh, expectations for what students can read at that point there isn't that in physical education uh, and and we often suffer from the fact that if compared to reading reading the time for reading and the priority and resources for reading overwhelm um, a subject matter like physical education. Despite the fact that there are 
a couple of nice studies, one done in Australia back in 1968, I think, and uh, another one um, uh, in one of the southern states in the USA that showed that if you have a vigorously physically active um, uh, student body, uh, everyone benefits from it. Learning improves, uh, attitudes improve, but to do that, they had to really um, work on making physical education and movement a key part of, of, of the entire day. Right, which, um, which comes into that whole school, whole child um, it, you know, model it does. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I can talk more about that in a, in a bit. But um, right now, physical education is pretty much seen in most schools more discreetly uh, than more integrated. And so... Um, in some districts, elementary school teachers know what that would know what their colleagues are doing. In other districts, they don't. Uh, in some districts, there's professional development. That in other districts, there's not. And if there is professional development, it may not be subject specific, or it may not even be effective and all related to the current needs of the of the um, teachers and the students. Um, but also, there is the increasing problem of class size in some school districts. Uh, the, uh, physical education is often a dumping ground for um, uh, what what in some states are called study halls. When they begin to overflow, students come back and, and um, uh, get put in physical education on top of the existing classes. This makes this creates problems for the teachers in terms of the uncertainty of who's going to be there on any given day, but also the class size issue. and in many cases, these students have done the content that was taught in physical education because they were in it before. So those represent lesson challenges. There's subject status, as I as I've suggested uh, in the article, uh, typically marginalized. The fact that we're marginalized, this is this prioritization of physical um, of other subjects over physical education in terms of time and resources and expectations from teachers. Um, a long time around. Um, I, I think that the marginalization uh, is more towards the subject matter than it is actual teachers in elementary school. But I think in middle and high school, there's a little bit, um, a little bit more on the individual teachers than just the subject matter. Yeah, yeah uh, I would agree. Uh, accountability, um, gee whiz, uh, there isn't accountability. Uh, for the most part, uh, we have a we have a superficial accountability, um, and that is most states have state um, standards. But for the most part, uh, nobody asks if those standards are being met. Um, in in my state, in Ohio, um, in grade bands K through three, uh, four through six, seven through nine, and uh, or seven through eight, or six through eight, and seven through um, twelve. Uh, no, sorry, nine through 12 in four sets of grade band students scores have to be reported for every student in the state. But there is no consequence if for a couple of years, everybody does really well and suddenly goes low or vice versa in a school. Um, so you'll see generally that I think is one of the real problems with accountability. Um, the closest we've ever gotten to it was uh, uh, the South Carolina folks led by Judy Rink studying um, uh, accountability in, in teachers for their um, their, their um, uh, standards project that they did. But 
again, it failed not because of the process, I think, but because there was no funding funding mm -hmm. to support the process. Yeah. And that represents a marginalization issue, uh, again, uh, this in, in, in terms of the subject matter. Uh, these these issues individually are not a big deal, but cumulatively begin to pull us in, in ways we probably don't want to go often down. Um, there is a there is a genuine problem with our teacher training, and I could talk for hours about our teacher training. Um, that's another paper, but the, the fundamental problem with teachers is we don't train teachers well enough to teach what they need to be teaching. Uh, uh, I. Uh, I don't. I don't believe that an American physical education teacher. Uh, this would be different if, if, in health a little bit. But I don't believe an American physical education teacher needs to know a great deal. They need to know something about anatomy and physiology. Um, mm -hmm. There is no value um, if you're teaching someone to throw if you know where the long head of the biceps are inserted or that where the scapula, where the rhomboids, how the rhomboids function, uh, what you need to know are the critical elements of throwing, yeah. not the musculature and not the bone. That is time that could be better spent on helping our teachers learn the content they need to teach, learn who the students are that they are teaching and learn how to connect the two together. Um, so my criticism is not so much of, of teachers, but of teacher training. Um, I will say that I, I don't think that's a get out of jail card for teachers. I think teachers are obligated to engage in their own professional development. And in the studies we have of teachers who have done this, uh, I'm thinking of the um, 1989, uh, 89, I think so, uh, elementary specialist study. Those elementary specialists went off on their own and develop the skill sets that they needed to develop. Um, they did their own training. They sought out um, uh, summer sessions. They did. Uh, they went to experts who could who could uh, teach the co the content they wanted to teach, and they took it on themselves. I I don't think we encourage that enough today. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we I think teachers get worn down a little bit by you know the 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 work that they do. Uh, in school, it's it's a great deal. In, in elementary school, they teach every kid in the school. Where if you're in third grade, you have one class, and you know those you can know those children well, and you can work with them for the entire year. Um, but librarians, physical education teachers, often art teachers, they see everybody. Right. Um, uh, and then finally, there is the curriculum. Um, I I have a very um, different view on the role of curriculum. Um, my, my, my basic view is I, I would be fine if teachers taught what they said they were going to taught very, very well, and it involved movement. It was done in a caring way that students learned how to get along with each other. Um, that would be a, a very good outcome. I don't agree that physical education has a muddled mission. Uh, an argument that has been promoted by a number of authors who have been just seriously concerned about the fact that if you play soccer in physical education and you measure how active students are, um, that they're, they're often active for only 30 or 40% of the time. Um, that's difficult to get your head around if you're playing soccer or a, 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 a badminton or another game. These these uh, physical activity 
uh, movement activities that should be up around 80%. Well, the problem that they even concluded from that is that it is the fault of the content. Um, I don't believe it's the fault of the content. I do believe how the content is presented makes a difference. If you play 6v6 volleyball versus 3v3 or 2v2 volleyball, you get very different moderate to vigorous physical activity outcomes. If you play 11v11 soccer versus 4v4 soccer, um, more developmentally appropriate, you get very different moderate to vigorous physical activity. The problem here comes back to content. Do our teachers know um, our content well enough to make adaptations like that? And uh, can they you know, sustain engagement in in um, in a curriculum that would develop uh, student skill levels. Um, that my my biggest criticism of curriculum in America by teachers is that teachers um, is the multi activity curriculum. And again, I don't have anything directly against the multi activity curriculum, except I really don't know how you can learn anything on the short amount of time that people spend on it. But there are things you could learn if your curriculum was juggling, for example, you need a, you know, a few days to do that. But if you're learning something like uh, tennis or, or um, soccer or, or um, a sport, or you're learning um, orienteering, you need more than a couple of days to do that. Right. And um, the, the issue for the curriculum here is Teachers used to be able to say, used to say most commonly, well, we wanted to expose students to a wide variety of activity. But because the students never became competent at those activities, most of those activities are not likely, uh, have not been used by students as they went to university and went on through life. And I think it was Chuck Corbin who published a, a list of the top 20 things that adults did, and sport wasn't in the top nine or eight i think tennis and golf i don't i think tennis was number nine number one was gardening and walking the dog was number two all of which are great adult activities but the question is is the is the data presented by chuck a result of a really poor system that failed to produce the outcomes of lifelong physical activity motivation that would allow students to engage in different activities or is it just um that's what adults do. Um, I don't think it's the latter, um, but it, it could be. We just don't have good data on that. Yeah. Um, and and either way, it's not what we want adults to do. Um, when we're in a working, when when people are working on a production line, they don't suffer moderate, from moderate to vigorous physical activity issues mm -hmm. because they're constantly working. Um, if you're an Amazon driver, um, you work pretty hard or work for Amazon. You don't have moderate to vigorous physical activity meaning your environment drives you a lot and you know maybe the environment needs to change a bit for adults yeah absolutely and and i think you know and hans talked about this in in his chapter about advocacy and promotion um, at all levels of pe and i totally agree with this and so my question to you is what do you feel like we should be advocating for to kind of fix some of these things and what should we look to fix in uh in pe yeah um when i when i look at advocacy i always look at advocacy either from a grassroots perspective so the idea movement and the smoking movement were a grassroots up movement um versus policy state laws etc which tend to be um a downward um uh top bottom movement 
And I think you need both. Um, I, I think the number one thing a physical education teacher can do is to be a very good physical education teacher and to publicize their results. I think um, showing um, that that um, communicating with parents in whatever context you happen to be at your school is in, whether it's a newsletter, whether it's a blog, whether it's a website, um, whether it's a note home, and, and having children um, talk about what they are doing in physical education because they had a positive experience and they're aware of their successes. I think this is the number one outcome we can do because I, I see no value, um, and I'll probably be stoned for saying this, but I see no value in going to the state house and engaging in um, uh, other efforts at, at the district level if you cannot demonstrate from the beginning that you are an effective teacher. And, and this is what math teachers are expected to do, science teachers. You don't get you don't get advocacy unless first you demonstrate you're doing well. And I think we have teachers who are doing well, and I think we have teachers who are not doing well. And um, the folk are not doing well, what can we do to help them? Is mm -hmm. it a resource issue? Um, because, you know, I, I would challenge us if we're teaching 60 students um, 30 of whom are meant to be in our class and 30 of whom are not. Some of those folks are on IEPs who really need aids to be with them. Um, some of those folks are, are, have autism, mild autism. I doubt that any of us could do a very good job of teaching in those conditions. Yeah, and, absolutely. And we need to be sensitive to that. But that doesn't describe all conditions in America. And um, so, yeah, I, I think... Um, We've got to be good at what we're doing, and, and um, we need we need union representation when we have those large class sizes to say to the district, no, that's not okay to put. If you have 25 people or 30 in a math class, then those are the people who are in physical education. You can't dump. You wouldn't dump people in math class, so don't dump them in physical education. Absolutely. Or you're not going to combine classes and have 60 60 students and you know two two teachers in there um, you wouldn't do that in math let's not do it in physical education that advocacy is having a strong union rep um, and representation um, but there's advocacy at the district level being heard um, uh, i do believe in the adage squeaky wheel the squeaky wheel gets attention but i, I would rephrase that that our best advocacy is the squeaky wheels i think one teacher going it alone that's not a prescription for success for them. They're safer in a group of teachers doing it. Um, so I think, you know, advocacy, letting parents know what they're doing, standing up and saying, this is what we do. Here's the evidence of what we do. Um, making that clear to administrators, um, letting people know that it's not okay to cut um, physical education out because you need the, you need the gymnasium for the right. uh, uh, session. Um, I think that requires um, a, a kind of internal support group where a teacher isn't fighting that battle on her own. She's got a lot of people around her who can say, hang on, you can't do it to her. You shouldn't be doing it to us. You know, we get, we get paid the same as the math teacher. We're held to the same standards. Uh, we have professional standards and expectations as, as state employees. And um, you need to be equitable about this. I think we need to do more of that, yeah. definitely. And as for the state and and um, 
uh, professional associations. I think certainly we need movements there. Um, but as I said earlier, I'm I um, I'm, I'm I'm not a believer in a national curriculum. I am a believer in state in state curriculums. Um, uh, that and I do believe those should be informed by by a, 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 the national standards, if you like. Um, but I think we need to look closely at you know what we're asking teachers to do, and part of that is the time they have available. But even if they only have a little time, they should simply do less but do it better. Yeah. Um, so, so let me ask you this: you you talked about not being a fan of uh, a national curriculum, and you you bring up a case study with Australia. Uh, which one has a has a national curriculum and two has combined health and physical education. So, um, can you explain a little bit about what you feel like we can learn from the approach used in Australia? And for those of you who are listening that don't know a lot about that, Laura Alfrey did a whole po- podcast on this somewhere in like the twenties, thirties, and in the first year of the podcast, and broke down the Australian curriculum, but. Phil, I'm wondering if you can teach, like, tell us a little bit about what you feel we can learn from that approach to teach PE here in the U.S. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I think there's lots to learn from Australia, but the, the, the big thing to learn from the Australian curriculum is they sat down and asked some really basic questions that, that don't get asked very often. Uh, one is, what, what do we want from our subject matter? What sort of outcomes do we want? And in doing so, they looked at who the students were and they addressed questions about, well, should we be dealing with more individual sports and team sports or should we be doing um, more content on on helping students be good consumers? And uh, they had a variety of um, uh, objectives. I, I think the issue is not to steal their objectives, but to, to sit down and ask in, in Australia, in, in America, sorry, in our context, what works? And the answer to that, and one reason why I'm not a national curriculum guy, is context matters. Um, I have placed, there are places in Ohio, like most states, that are very well off. Uh, and there are places in, a, in Ohio that are as bad a school district as you could find anywhere in the country. And mm-hmm. I think for the most part, with the exception of some very small states and some states in the in the true Midwest, um, like North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, that's that's a very true statement. Most states have very large diversity in the quality of the building, the 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 the, 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 the students who are who are, are coming to school in terms of the the variation, mostly in terms of SES. And if you go to Ohio in Portsmouth, those students are going to be low SES and they're going to come from environments, not necessarily family environments, but but cultural environments and just living environments outside that are not the best. And teachers have to, you know, have to have to work with that. It's a lot easier if you're if you're from a wealthy or middle class school district. Um, so I, I believe in I, not necessarily local, but I do believe in state um, state uh, curriculums and I'm a big proponent for more power to state associations. I, I, I don't think we, uh, in terms of advocacy, to go back to the earlier question, I think the solution in America is not national um, work. I think the state associations have got to step up and do 
considerably more than they have. And to do that, they need more resources. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have a clue how they get that. Um, right. But I, I do think that our solution to a lot of these issues are state level uh, rather than national level, because it's just too distant in a country like America. Um, so what can we learn from um, uh, Australia? One of their big perspectives was let's let's look at what students have at what skills they bring what they can currently do and make them better at it this was their salutogenic perspective that is working with the strengths of students but it didn't mean that they ignored you know other aspects that they could improve on um uh the other big issue for australia one i'm very passionate about is they they have always done this i believe they've incorporated physical education and health and um i think this is a major error uh in america right now i think we went down that path where they where we were together we do have physical education teachers um teaching health in america and and many of them do a really good job but but here is the problem um uh if someone is listening in America and could tell me where I could get a PhD in health education, I would be really interested in knowing. I don't know of anywhere where you can get a PhD in health in America, in health education, K-12 health education, other than in a, um, a one-of-a-kind program or a curriculum instruction program where you specialize in that area. Um, the, other, the other problem is that some states... Um, I'm thinking Michigan and uh, Pennsylvania, uh, as well as some individual universities, have combined physical education and health into a single degree. And I think that's marvelous, except they haven't increased the hours. And so both physical education and health have seriously not enough time in the curriculum. It needs to be a double major with all that that means. Um, uh, we just finished the study of every university every teacher education program in the United States. And um, we looked at physical education and health and almost, almost universally health was shortchanged in every state. Some exceptions where it was not that physical education teachers were simply better trained than health educated. If you, if you go to any of the health journals and go back two decades, and look for a single, well, not, I'm just, I think there's a couple, but there are no pedagogy uh, articles for teachers about how you can uh, teach health education. Um, here's, here are the pedagogies for doing that. There's nothing like that. Now, granted, you could go to any other classroom-based subject and steal those pedagogies, but there aren't. And and um, in, a, in a book... Um, uh, Shona Snyder and I just uh, published, we talked about using, for example, um, sport education in the classroom. And we, we put everybody in pods like you would in a team in physical education. We said, you know, call themselves the um, CDC or the World Health, Health Organization, affiliate with that group um, and, you know, have, you know, have um, affiliation colors and, and basically ran a sport education uh, in health Um probably shouldn't be called sport ed but we stole the idea from from sport ed um, and we thought that was a really good way of transitioning and, and in fact there was a district in ohio that um i thought this was absolutely brilliant every other day was physical education every other day was health and both subjects were taught by the same teacher 
And I thought that the learning that, that occurred in, the, in that district with the classes that I've observed, I observed over a couple of years was just staggering. The, the teacher knew her students really well. She could connect physical education and health concepts in both classes and say, hey, this is a good example of what we were talking about the other day. And you remember when we go into the gym tomorrow, pay attention to this. I just thought it was outstanding. Um, we don't we don't value those the same way in America. And I don't think we prepare health educators anywhere near as well as we should. And we certainly don't have enough resources for health educators uh, in America. Yeah. Um, and, and here here at Mason, we have a combined degree. So we we get a, or we provide a licensure at the end in health and physical education. They do their field work in their methods course in health ed. They take other health education courses. And I think, you know, they are way better prepared to teach health. But then in, in one of the biggest school districts here or in the nation, in one of the top 10 biggest school districts in Fairfax County, the health education is often led to the classroom teacher to teach, even though in that building there's a licensed health and physical educator who is working and only teaching PE and they're not getting that health and they're doing only like two days of PE and I think that you know what you write in the towards the end of the article about that two-week cycle where you have three days of health two days in PE and then the next week three days of PE two days of health you teach each one five times in that two-week cycle I think it's it's very, very valuable to have that type of system. And I'm gonna skip ahead here and we'll come back to the other question, but can you kind of just like give your opinion on merging health and PE? Like if, if someone has listened to this and they have an only a physical education major, do you think that they should be looking forward to adding health and PE? Do you feel like that's where the the field should be kind of migrating towards is the combination of health and PE like has happened in Michigan semi recently. Yeah, I think absolutely. I just don't, I, I, I absolutely think, you know, for example, in Ohio right now, you can't even get an elementary job and elementary doesn't teach health. They're taught by classroom teachers, but you can't get a job as a physical education teachers in the vast majority of our schools without a health education license. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that's the path forward because school districts, um, from a purely logistical perspective, want the greatest flexibility with their teachers, and teachers want that if if they ha if they could stay in the in district and keep their jobs if they're not yet tenured, it gives them the greatest flexibility to move around. From a subject matter perspective, it makes the greatest sense because of the connectivity that you can make, and if you fit that into the whole school, whole community, whole child model, that's a very good uh, entrance entrance way um, because you've got one teacher uh, in charge of health and PE and that can make even better connections to the community. Um, the, uh, I think if you, if you are going to teach health, however, um, and I would say this to teacher educators as much as I would say it to teachers, you've got to do a good job. Um, they, we really, you know, you know, I'll, I'll just give an example of, of a major misunderstanding. Um, so so if you talk to most people about sex education, um, they're going to be talking about, well, 
we're going to cover why you shouldn't do it, what happens when you do it, what are the STDs you can get, what are the problems that accompany it. But in fact, I would argue that's entirely the wrong way to focus on it. You ought to be talking about decisions that need to be made before young people get into those conditions where they're not going to think well. Mm -hmm. um, they need to, the very best. It may not work still, but they need to very much have decided what they're going to do, what take a stand on their values for themselves, have opinions about this. Again, they might not work when they're getting hot and heavy, but they but if they have a pre uh, uh, if they've considered the issues beforehand, they've made decisions, they've done scenarios, um, they've done some role playing. This puts them in a better position for talking about sex, um, for dealing with the, the to dealing with issues of sexuality and sex. And I'm just talking about that dimension, not all the other issues that have to do with gender and sexuality. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I think I don't I, many, you know, many health curriculums, if they even if they even deal with that stuff, are still teaching back in the day. And and the thing about health more than any other subject is it's a real moving target. Um, I mean, who would have thought mask wearing would be a big issue? Hand washing would be a big issue uh, in, you know, beyond the, the normal requirement in health education five years ago yeah. than it is now. Uh, it's it's a major uh, issue. And the other issue for health is the issue of, well, who do you trust? You know, why? Because it's a moving target. We hear data on this and data on this you know, who do we believe? And people need to understand, um, or students need to understand, people I guess too, that, you know, we do, we go with the best game we have in town with the science we have at that point, which might change next week with better with better data. Okay. Um, so it, I consider health a very difficult subject area to teach yeah, uh, and because it's, it's a moving target. It's almost like uh, a computer science degree in a way, right? That as soon as you graduate, the technology moves so fast and we have a we have a great health educator here at mason luann norton and she talks to her classes about saying i'm going to teach you how to teach health i'm not going to worry about the content because you know 10 years ago if you graduated you you know nothing about vaping vaping isn't even a thing up Absolutely. until it is like a huge thing and then uh, whatever the next thing is, a pandemic, uh, mask wearing, you know, stuff like that. It's constantly changing. So, and that's, you know, if you go in and create a health education degree that you go through epidemiology courses and all these different things, I think it's, it's kind of similar to what PE would be, like we talked about earlier, of taking these really intensive anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, exercise, uh, physiology and all of these different courses and not focusing on the pedagogy of it. And, and I, I love your idea of doing a double major, you know, taking that time to learn both. But I also think that, you know, and we talked about this in different podcasts about where you're situated. If you're situated in a school of kinesiology, a lot of your core courses in your physical education major will be core courses in kinesiology versus if you're situated in a school of education and that's, you know, you've moved over there, then maybe you have more pedagogy courses in that core instead of such a heavy, you know, having to make sure that biomechanics courses are, are taught by or taken by every single person in second levels of them. So 
um, I, I think I think you're right. It's a very complicated position to be in, but I think you're right. And moving towards the combination of health and PE is is smart. Yeah, I, I think so. I you know my personal preference would be to be away from the exercise sciences and be in a in a college of education, but that's not true for everywhere and. You know, where I am at Ohio State, we've been quite fortunate to be in the environment we are, which is a sort of human sciences with nutrition and uh, health and development, uh, human development and um, kine uh, other kinesiology groups, sport industry, etc. Um, I don't think there's a one size fits all to where physical education teacher and health education belongs. But yeah. Yeah, listening to this, and you're in your PhD program somewhere, you're going to be very much in demand because they cannot, you can't find health educators to fill jobs right now. Yeah. Um, when Michigan, when Michigan uh, went and they said they had to have health education as a dual degree, people, universities were looking for health educators. Uh, they just couldn't find them. Yeah, that, and that's so interesting. I've never actually thought about that of trying to find somebody who has a PhD in health education from a US university, whereas we're moving towards uh, an HPE profession in certain states, and how do you then teach the content that needs to be taught? I mean, yes, you can, you can bring in high school teachers to teach certain ones as adjuncts, but where is that then the research that goes on in it? And there aren't a ton of publications in the US that talk about health education like journals and... no they're, they're not and um uh, it, it's it, it is a it is a pressing problem for our field to deal with yeah. um <clears throat> we're not universities are not serving their students very well when they make them do biomechanics and heavy duty exercise science classes when those people are going to be teachers yeah. and those teachers in turn won't serve the children and youth that they teach because you cannot teach what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And if you don't even have an idea of how to do pedagogy, that's an even bigger problem. So yeah. content and pedagogy are, are a really big issue. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're big. So <clears throat> towards the end of the paper, you talk about the future directions of PE and explain that things really need to change. And so can you take us through the four possible futures, starting with the first, which is uh, what you call a plastic profession? Yeah, this, this was um, content I stole from a group that does knowledge works. Um, their, 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 their future future forecasting, they, they like to say what could be. And they came back with four what could be scenarios. Um, truthfully, I, 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 the ones that they really like, I'm not sure I like as much, but but uh, the plastic profession is pretty much um, a metaphor for plastic that was just really inflexible and hard, not soft flex flexibility, but one that was like rigid. Those that that that's pretty much what we've got right now. We've got a set number of hours for for, for the subject matter in schools, uh, a curriculum defined. Um, and you pretty much need to do what's what um, the district has laid out. You may have had some input into that, but there's no growth. There's no real adaptation allowed. Um, uh, teachers are free to teach what they want, but at the end of the day, it tends to be more similar. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
some of the greatest changes we've seen have been a little bit in the elementary curriculum more than middle and, and high school. And yet in other subject areas, it's been the middle school curriculum that has shown the most change in America over the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Um, so the plastic profession is just an inflexible one that doesn't pay attention to student needs. And uh, that's, the, that's the sort of metaphor they used. Uh, another one is very much, um, it was called Take Back the Classroom. And the idea here is that teachers banded together, decided what they wanted in the name of their district curriculum, or even perhaps even at a state level. But I think the, the example was more at the um, school level. And um, they basically defined what they were going to teach. And um, as a group, uh, they had sort of um, the issue with meeting mental prescription profession where in Australia, um, for example, this is a very big threat um, where is not taught by a trained physical education teacher. It might be taught by a physical education teacher who's working for um, Tennis Australia or Soccer Australia or right. it's not taught this notion of outsourcing, which is also common in, in the UK, as I understand it, and elsewhere and some places in the USA, um, this outsourcing notion um, represents a threat to the sort of progress of the profession if you believe that physical education has its own body of knowledge, a set of skills that teachers need to have, they need training to acquire both of those. Yeah, It's not something that was uh, a janitor who played basketball could referee basketball that they probably couldn't teach a lesson manage a lesson develop the skill sets the skills of the of, of the students and and do all the other things that teachers do the social emotional characteristics the knowledge um the last the last one um simply recognize that that um the world is, is it's really the, the amount of knowledge that's available at any given moment is, is greater in just a week than it was, significantly greater in just a week than it was before. It doubles every, I don't know what the, what, what the number of years is, but it doesn't take many years for knowledge to, to double. And a lot of the stuff that, that is knowledge is not actually relevant in some ways to what we're doing now. Um, uh, an example of that would be um, this this blog as a as a podcast as a as a um, example of professional development was unheard of um, 15 years ago. Yeah, uh, maybe not even that far back. Uh, so this notion of adapting to students, what are their needs, and if if you know. Um, uh, uh, it, it looks a little bit differently, uh, and so if if you're working in a inner city environment and students are incredibly aggressive then probably putting a racket in their hand to teach them a racket sport is not a good idea maybe adventure-based learning is a good outcome for them first to start with right. um, if they're if they're in a um, uh, a middle class school maybe having a really good sport education season that goes over time where not just motor skills and tactics are developed but 
appreciating each other's in their different roles, sharing the roles, acquiring knowledge about the sport, understanding its history and the larger uh, scope of the world. Um, maybe that's a better outcome than having five units uh, that are like eight days long mm -hmm. um, and having one unit that is maybe 30 days long. Better to do something really well, in my view, than a lot of things not very well, particularly when we have over 100 years of evidence that it doesn't translate into physical activity in that act, in that sport as they get older. Right. Um, uh, Daryl Seentop, in his first book on pedagogy, had a section called Approach Tendencies. That is, you would be willing um, to take on things because of your past experiences, not just motor competence, but just you had positive experience, you'd be willing to risk take doing new content. I think that's a good a good issue um, there. And none of that belies the fact that you don't have, to, you know, that you don't need to be teaching basketball. You could be teaching them something that is a different activity, um, that everyone be on a fairly level playing field in terms of their prior knowledge. Yeah, interesting. So I guess, I guess as we're kind of wrapping this up, I, I am, I'm going to leave you with a very heavy question because it's going to ask you to summarize all of this in a few minutes, but what what does the ideal vision of the future for PE look like to you? Um, I, I don't know if there is one vision for me. Um, I, I first believe that our number one outcome is that students should do things where they're competent. They, um, they are physically active. Um, for at least 80% of the lesson. Um, it doesn't need to be vigorous, but they should be, you know, moving. Uh, our subject matter is a movement subject matter and, and everything else, values, social issues, um, knowledge, all should be in service of moving. Um, I think whatever curriculum is used, whatever uh, pedagogies are used, uh, um, you know, putting, assuming that these are uh, appropriate models, um, and by that, I mean they have some validity behind them. Um, I think matters that we're successful at what we do. I, you know, I, I don't know if I know what the right answer is. Um, I do know that the best outcome is going to be people who accomplish things. And, you know, if, if they're doing a, um, uh, a circus unit in California in one of the middle schools and it's incredibly active, it's, it doesn't look like anything that, we would see in Ohio for the most part, I'm all for it. Um, I'm, I'm not in favor of a non-movement based subject matter. So uh, I'm not in favor of sitting down, spending enormous amounts of time sitting down. Um, I'm not in favor of that. It's sitting down and learning, uh, learning cognition uh, or, or uh, even uh, social emotional work. I believe all of this has to be developed hand in hand with moving, which mm -hmm. doesn't mean you can't have the odd day to sit down to set something up. But uh, uh, we have a movement subject matter. That's what we're focusing on. And the other things I do believe is I, I, I believe that social emotional learning should be embraced as a school um, focus, not a subject focus. But I believe the appropriate home for social emotional learning is health education, mm -hmm. not yeah. physical education, as many are arguing. Um, uh, and some are arguing, I, I believe it belongs in health education because that's the appropriate context to talk about it. 
and and I, I my personal opinion is health should be driving the school focused on social emotional learning, not a not some outside um, issue. Which you know this would increase the status of the physical education health teacher greatly in a school. I think. Yeah, and if you um, go into that HPE model that you talked about that you observed of every two weeks, then you know, or every two weeks you're getting five lessons of each. You can really embed. SEL teach the content and then put it into action in in PE and reinforce it so you're getting social emotional learning throughout the curriculum and it's not just a hey we're going to do a physical education lesson today that's focused on SEL you know that it's yeah, part I, of the whole system I I have never understood the argument for short units because mm -hmm. if you had a good long unit um, that was, let's just say, 25 or 30 days. And I know that would take up entire semesters in some parts of America. But you could have conditioning going on in support of the physical activity that was going, that was occurring. You could have long-term social-emotional strategies in place that <clears throat> pardon me, didn't have to be achieved in one day. They could, you had 30 days to develop it um, in, in within the context of that one unit. You have motor skills, you've got tactical decision-making, you've got um, all of the issues about winning and losing that can, that can be addressed. You've got um, roles of everyone to play. You're in no hurry to do it all because you've got enormous amounts of time where students need... Um, where, where they get repeated opportunities to get good at this. It, it, the short units don't give students repeated opportunities to be captains, to be um, uh, uh, to engage in moderate to vigorous physical activity and improve over time to um, develop their skills beyond just the most simplistic, simplistic way um, to understand um, that ups and downs emotionally are things that might be present with you and here's a skill set you can use to deal with things um, that you can get repeated opportunity to do this and um, you know we no one would say after one layup you're done um, with learning to do the layup but we often do that with social skills uh, mm -hmm. a great deal we yeah. tell kids there this is what you need to be doing and then we don't come back to it yeah absolutely well phil i i really appreciate uh, you coming on. I, I love the article. I also loved your uh, pedagogy seminar that you did with Ben Dyson um, I can, like maybe a year ago now, but I, I remember listening to it and just learning so much as I have in, in this conversation with you. And um, I think you bring up some really interesting points, really uh, you know, good vision for the future. And I think that the special issue is exactly what, what we need to kind of look through and reflect on if if it's a PEAT educator or a PE teacher or an HPE teacher now. Um, but thanks thanks for coming on, Phil. Really appreciate it. Oh, I, I deeply appreciate the opportunity. Um, I think our best investment is in teachers. Um, I, I, I learned that as a grad student and I've never seen anything since then to change my mind. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about how we can help them. Absolutely. And we'll put the link to the full article in the show notes and um, you can see the comments uh, in, the, um, in the notes section. You can see the full DOI uh, uh, link. So you can just click on that and read the article. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. Have a good day.
If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.